to Northway's D Group Podcast. I'm your host, Rodney Mills, and I'm so glad you stopped by to visit one more time. We're continuing our discussions about the many different spiritual dis- disciplines that uh, you might use to build your rule of life. We're analyzing the life of Jesus and saints throughout the ages who have used these practices to shape their lives to be kingdom-oriented, where kingdom righteousness becomes automatic in our responses to life. In our last session, we looked at a passage in Hebrews and determined this, that to lay aside every weight that slows us down or holds us back from living the Jesus way, that's living the unencumbered life. It embraces the spiritual disciplines of simplicity and frugality. Of course, that has to do with how we allocate time and energy, freeing up bandwidth and margin to experience a pace of peace. But it also has a whole lot to do with what we think about material stuff as well. And Jesus had so much to say about this subject that we need to look at it again just a little bit more closely. Now, before you jump in, you need to know that I'm going to be referring to a few diagrams and illustrations, so you might want to download the transcript so you can see those as you're listening to the podcast. All right, well, let's jump in. Let's talk about the elusiveness of enough. My first job at a church was in a fellowship at the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains in Sevierville, Tennessee. Christy and I were the ripe old age of 21. I was actually still a student in college. We had almost nothing to our name. The pastor, he came with a pickup truck and the smallest U-Haul trailer available, and we had plenty of room to spare once all our belongings were secured. My starting salary was $20,000 a year. And I'm telling you, it seemed like we had hit the jackpot, especially for a college guy like me struggling to get by on a Domino's Pizza Man kind of income. I figured it up that my starting hourly wage was about $9.62. Now granted, it was 1988, but still, that's not a lot of money. But from my perspective, at least at that stage of life, it was more than enough to provide for the needs of me and my bride of only nine months. Until I decided we needed a new car, and we took on our first new car monthly payments. And then there was our first real vacation. And then, within a few months, we were pregnant with our first child. Medical costs went up. More furniture was needed for this new addition to the family. And within a few months of being married and having all that we needed, suddenly we were in a position that didn't feel like enough. And I can remember as the story of our life unfolded, and it's probably not any different than yours, I'm sure. We had three children, and that's three times the cost. And even though raises came along and new job opportunities were always a chance for salaries to jump at least a bit, it it continued to feel that this idea of having enough seemed so elusive. I mean, I can remember vividly one day sitting in the car at an intersection, thinking way down the road and dreaming of a day when Christy and I would make a combined $52,000 a year, $1,000 a week. I mean, are you kidding me? We We could live absolutely like kings. But alas, when that day did finally come, it did not actually feel like it was enough. For there was always something else, more medical bills, more tuition payments, more recording gear and keyboards that I just had to have. And, well, you know the the story quite well, don't you? Financial pressures 
are almost always ranked near the top of the list when it comes to what brings stress into our lives. Marriages crumble every day under the weight of it. In fact, in some studies, finances are often at the root cause of the worst arguments couples have. It's not hard to realize that for most of us, money is not just an inanimate object of necessity. It actually holds power over us. It holds us captive and mesmerized. It has our attention and affection either for good or for bad so often. And while we would never want to admit it, many of us are enslaved to it. It's no wonder that Jesus had so much to say about the subject. And if you and I, as his apprentices, his students, are to take on the mind of Christ, then it stands to reason that we need to pay special attention to what he and his apostles have to say about this issue. After all, Jesus assures us that if we know his truth, we will be set free. And I believe that means every aspect of our life should be impacted by his truth, including our money. We can be set free from the bondages and entrapments of money. Not that in, not that in and of itself money is inherently bad, but we probably need to change our attitude and perspective about our finances to the way Jesus wants us to see it. Now, it's not likely in this lesson that I can cover everything Jesus had to say about money and the disciples' proper perspective on it, but let's at least give it a quick look and pull out some highlights. Luke tells us in chapter 12 that by this time in Jesus' ministry that sometimes the crowds of people would number into the thousands. It is at one of these occasions that evidently someone sees Jesus as not only a wise teacher, but also someone with some kind of authority. Listen to this in verse 13 of Luke 12. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator for you? So this sounds like a a pretty common scenario. The siblings are, are fighting over who gets mom's old china and who gets dad's old Buick. Jesus sees to the heart of the problem, though, and he sees that it's all about materialism. So here's his response. He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Or put slightly a different way, take care. Protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. And that's a really important first clue into the mind of Christ when it comes to your finances. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. So Jesus moves on to a parable, uh, an illustration of his point. And this starts in verse 16. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Or put a little more plainly, that's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. Jesus was saying to these two brothers who were arguing over their inheritance by using this story about the farmer that they needed an adjustment in their thinking about money and materialism. A realignment of priorities, a a proper perspective. 
He's saying you're placing too much emphasis on yourself and your stuff. You're distracted from the main thing, which is to fill your barn with God, to be rich toward Him. And he gets even clearer about it just a few chapters down the road in Luke 16. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And this is pretty strong, don't you think? You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Uh, Now, mammon is the word you might see in your translation instead of money. And by using that Aramaic term, uh, mammon, he is personifying money. He's actually holding it up as an alternative to God. And he's saying that money is not just a neutral and inanimate thing. It has a spiritual power about it, and it seeks to dominate us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion, and we can only cleave to one Lord. And the great reformer Martin Luther once said, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. So are you enslaved to your money? Let me suggest some ways we might struggle with being enslaved and maybe unaware. Now before I go there, I'm sure some of us are kind of like, Ah, here we go again, Rodney getting all up in my business. But I want to caution you a bit, because you need to see this observation from Dr. Luke after Jesus was warning about serving two masters. The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all of this and scoffed at him. And so I hardly think you want to get lumped in with the Pharisees. So no scoffing as you listen, please. Take some scoff medicine, or at least a scoff drop, (laughs) and let's get into this. I want to use a diagram that, as I mentioned, you will have to look at in the transcript. And as you look at it, you'll see this line, which represents a scale of sorts related to our finances and possessions. In one way, it represents what we can do with the money God provides to us. It's a stewardship scale, if you will. But as you'll also see, it has to do with providing for our physical needs as well as our wants. But what I really want you to see is that it can also represent our attitude and heart condition towards money. Now, before we get too deep, I want to also stress that I can't know specifically what God wants from you. At times, Jesus tells some people, due to their enslavement to their money and possessions, that he wants them to sell everything and give it to the poor. Don't rule that out, but... At other times, he allowed well-to-do women to support his ministry, and he he regularly ate with the rich and the privileged. He also showed how transferring wealth from earth to heaven could work. When Zacchaeus made financial restitution for his criminal activity, Jesus joyfully announced that today salvation has come to this home. The Good Samaritan used his money generously through acts of mercy and clearly drew closer to the kingdom of God in that parable. But even in light of all that, I think there is a general attitude we need to embrace, a mind of Christ perspective as we apprentice our lives to Him. And I believe there's one central concept that might make all the difference in the world. And there's one simple word, and that word is enough. And so, we place that on our scale as our potential target, as you can see there in the illustration. And as you can see, if we're not careful, our actual position can feel just short of what we think is enough. And this is why I call it elusive. It feels like a, an moving target. And why is that? Well, let's take a look at just a few of the potential struggles I've been referring to. The first one is actual shortages. I mean, 
Certainly, life has moments and even seasons where there seems to be more month than there is money. I mean, can I get a witness out there, somebody? Now, we know sometimes, if not often, these shortages may be self-inflicted. We're not living within our means, accessing easy-to-get credit. We know sometimes there's no one to blame but ourselves. But still, the struggle is real no matter how you got into the financial situation you're in. Life can be very expensive. Just keeping up with the necessities can seem out of reach sometimes. But another struggle some of us have is that we seem to have an identity crisis, that material things define us. Here in America, Madison Avenue plays right into this by using manipulative marketing, feeding that prominent sin of lust of the eyes. And the purpose of all this media bombardment is to increase desire. And here's their plan. Their plan is to change your thoughts from, that's extravagant, into, well, that would be nice to have, and then into, I really need that, and finally, I gotta have it. This often leads to, or is compounded by, another struggle. Comparison living. We experience envy and jealousy, feeling like we deserve or have a right to what other people have. We feel bad because we can't give our kids or our spouses what other people do. And speaking of spouses, another struggle some of us have is misaligned views of money in marriages. We've already mentioned this, but marriages often struggle not only because of actual shortages, but because of differences of views on finances. And the struggle is real because worry and stress are rarely compartmentalized. When there is hardship and tensions financially, it can affect your trust with one another. It creates negative emotions, and it can create an underlying fear and discontent, all of which destabilizes that relationship. I'm telling you, couples really need to get on the same page here. And maybe just one more example. Maybe it's fear of the future. We ask questions like, what if something goes wrong with a car? What if I can't afford college tuition for my kids when they get older? What if I run out? What if my 401k isn't enough to make it after I retire? So thinking about those struggles, and I'm sure you could list many others, let's go back to that diagram and reflect on their effects. What impact do they really have? Well, when we feel that we genuinely don't have enough, feelings of worry and fear tend to dominate our emotions. Stress weighs heavy. We can feel desperate. It consumes our energies and makes us on edge. But on the other hand, if the bills are paid, our selfish desires kick in and subtle forms of greed slip into our hearts. We want more. Oh, not necessarily a lot more, but maybe just a little more. We see that our friend got a new handbag or a set of golf clubs, and we think we'd be better off with those things ourselves. Our hobbies get a little more expensive. The restaurants we go to are more costly. And we create a lifestyle that has to be maintained, and so we end up paying credit card interest out the wazoo and overextending ourselves with car payments and membership fees. And once again, there's a stress to keep up appearances and to keep moving up, so to speak. <laughs> this is, after all, as we've been taught our whole life, the American dream, and it's almost a duty to pursue it. Now, we see these negative effects, and we're going to deal with them in a moment, but I want to go back and stress that material things, money, possessions, are not bad in and of themselves. I wouldn't want any of us to get the impression that we're all required to live a life of voluntary poverty. There's no such requirement given for every person. Though for some, that may be a chosen lifestyle, and maybe even for a few, it might be a calling of sorts. But in fact, the Bible is full of notions to the contrary. 
I mean, clearly there's a principle of God blessing his people. From Abraham to Job to Solomon, the Old Testament often associates wealth as a blessing from God to his people. Abundance and even wealth are not uncommon for God followers. But they're also not an absolute either. And what we're after here is to discover the mind of Christ, to apprentice our lives to him so our view of money is aligned with his. He absolutely knew these dangers and pitfalls that money and possessions would bring to his followers. He knew that if our hearts and minds were distracted and enslaved to our worries and fears or our greed and obsessions, then he could not take first place in our lives. So, and this is a big point, whether we have little or much, it is our attitude toward God's provision and our acknowledgement of our tendencies toward materialism that matters most. To take on the disposition of Christ in these matters, it runs so contrary to our ingrained instincts of acquisition and consumption. I love the way Henry Newman put it. Listen to what he said. The society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up, making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record. That's what draws attention, gets us on the front page of the newspaper, and offers us the rewards of money and fame. The way of Jesus is radically different. It is the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the bottom, staying behind the sets, and choosing the last place. And why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? Because it's the way to the kingdom, the way Jesus took, and the way that brings everlasting life. Boy, that's powerful, isn't it? And so, at the core of his teaching around this subject, Jesus says we have two choices. One is to continue our worry and stress and striving, or we can seek first his kingdom and his right-setting ways, the disciples' priority. We can, in one way or another, give our attention, affections, and allegiance to material concerns, or we can worship and honor God by trusting him with our whole lives. And once again, this is an invitation to the unencumbered life, the life that finds itself fully and totally satisfied by the sufficiency of God. Christ is enough. Like Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, the water I give will never run out. It's the verse in the old hymn that says, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength is indeed small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. His loving provision is all that we truly need. Seek first his kingdom. Remember, his kingdom is that real and actual dominion of life where God is in action for the good of his people. Listen, friend, we can count on him. We can depend on him. We can put all our confidence in him. Listen to the encouragement of Jesus. So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, and what will we wear? And look at this distinction Jesus makes here. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. So how about it? Do these things dominate your thoughts? I mean, it shouldn't be that way with us. He knows what you need. Take no thought, as another familiar translation says. Listen, friend, if you want to know where God is in the midst of your crisis, let me just tell you, one of God's many addresses is at the end of your rope. And when you get there, you're sure to find him. In fact, Pastor Peterson paraphrases the first beatitude this way, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God in his rule. 
Trust God's promises like this one. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Ah, friend, if you're at the little end of the scale, can I just remind you that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? You see, here's the proposal Jesus gives us. He's saying we need a change of focus, a change of what consumes our thinking, shifting it towards our new reality. Listen again. Your Father, your Heavenly Father, already knows all your needs. Seek first the kingdom of God. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, and especially God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns are going to be met. He will give you everything you need. Do you believe that? I mean, when we make this shift in our thinking, and yes, that's the very definition of repentance, our worry is replaced with trust. Our fear is replaced with confidence. And our stress is replaced with peace. Now, certainly, God still requires us to be responsible. We still have to pay back our debts. The bills don't just go away. And so there may need to be some practical adjustments made in our lifestyles, maybe even some radical ones. But our definition of enough gets totally redefined when it's not wrapped up in the material and when it is totally found in God's all-sufficient kingdom. This is the key, folks. Our confidence in God, not our financial position, should determine our contentment. Paul famously says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, friends, Our real goal when it comes to all the stuff of life should simply be contentment. Paul would also say to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. And the writer of Hebrews echoes these statements. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You see, when we are content, we feel we have enough. I'm reminded of the wise words of G.K. Chesterton. There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Can you be content, as Paul said, with simply food and clothing? What if, in our proper quest for the kingdom, we actually set as our goal to desire less? What if we did everything we can to reduce our definition of enough, freeing up the leftover blessings of God to do his kingdom work? We know what God has to say about the dangers of wanting more. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, those who love money will never have enough. How absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. And once again, the writer of Hebrews said, be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. And there's another word to add to our definition of enough. Satisfied. It's like John Piper's life motto. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And then, just perhaps as we readjust our own definition of enough, finding our full satisfaction in Christ, and maybe even actually getting to the place where we desire less, God will continue to pour out his blessings and we'll have more resources than ever 
to build computer labs at Acres of Hope in Uganda, or to help the victims of the next hurricane that comes through Houston, or to send missionaries to unreached people, unreached people groups around the world, to clothe the naked and to feed the poor, and to partner with God in his mission to reconcile all things back to himself. Paul says, teach those who are rich in the world, and by the standards of this present world, just about everyone listening to this could probably be classified as rich. Paul says, teach them not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Ah, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Now look at this. He goes on to say, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. And by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. In other words, tell them to go after God, who piles on all the riches we could ever manage, to do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. And if they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. Now that's life, friends. That's truly life content and satisfied with what we have, reaping the benefits of a gracious and loving Father, and taking any wealth and abundance He gives us to do good, to help others, to be extravagantly generous. That's what it means to really live the abundant life in the kingdom of the heavens, in the here and now. That's what it means to be satisfied, content, and to know you have enough. So we've got clarity about what the mind of Christ is to be in the everyday events of our financial life. So I want to close out by quickly talking about just a few disciplines we might implement through which the Holy Spirit will help us to put on a new heart. Let's start with a familiar one. Let's start with the practice of gratitude, one we've mentioned several times already in our studies. You see, here's the the thing about gratitude. Gratitude turns what we have into enough. And there are a few ways to practice gratitude, including some we've already discussed. In addition to implementing thanks into your alert-based prayer journal, you can also keep a a gratitude journal and pause to write in it at least every couple of days. Uh, You could get in the habit of saying thank you to everybody for just about everything. You could write thank you notes early and often and learn to savor those moments. Practice the examen at the end of each day. You're reflecting on God's goodness and thanking Him for it. Of course, another obvious spiritual discipline is that of stewardship. And stewardship is simply uh, spiritually managing the resources God's blessed you with for the sake of others. That's what stewardship is. Certainly, He provides your resources for your own care and the care of your family. But always keep the kingdom in view. Make a a conscious and concrete decision about how much is enough to keep. Work toward desiring less, and then determine how the rest will be invested in the work of kingdom-oriented right-setting in the world. Of course, tithing or giving 10% of your income is a biblical principle, but really, that's probably aiming too low. We're aiming for extravagant generosity or sacrificial giving here. I mean, the Pharisees thought they were big stuff for tithing. But Jesus was much more impressed with the widow who gave all she had. 
even just a couple of pennies, even though it wasn't very much money. Now, I love the way how St. Augustine puts this. Find out how much God has given you, and from it, take what you need. The remainder is needed by others. Next, you can actually take on the spiritual practices of frugality and simplicity that we've been talking about. Now, I want to be careful here because I, I don't want to suggest any kind of legalism or judgmentalism, but if you've struggled with materialism in any way, then for a season or maybe even for the rest of your life, you may consider these disciplines of abstinence. Practice to the fullest, frugality and simplicity means a life of stark minimalism. And here are just a few ways that you could practice these. Uh, number one, buy only what you absolutely need, and even then, keep it simple. Again, make decisions based on the context of God's kingdom. Instead of buying a new shirt, ask yourself how it affects the kingdom of God. Do you already have plenty of shirts like this? Do you really need another one? Could you give the equivalent money to a charity that clothes the poor? To start with, maybe try to not buy anything new for yourself for one month. I mean, you might be surprised at how little you actually need. And then thirdly, uh, give things away as much and as often as you can. And that practice helps to remind you to not be so attached to your possessions. Now, one more time, I want to stress that this is a practice that teaches or trains you to seek first the kingdom. It's probably not a requirement for all believers, but I have personally been working at adopting it even more deeply into my life. Just allow the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and discernment about if and how you might implement frugality and simplicity into your context. And then lastly, I want to highly recommend the spiritual discipline of guidance. Guidance is seeking to know God's will through the prayerful counsel of spiritual friends and leaders. Proverbs tells us that plans fall for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Now, I know that our finances are such a personal matter that we're often not comfortable talking with anyone about them, but here's the thing. As we've clearly seen here in this session, our finances are very much a spiritual matter, and as such, we need godly wisdom in how to move forward. So if you don't feel equipped to do that on your own, if the struggle is real for you in that way, then I want to encourage you to seek help. There are plenty of wise financial advisors that can help you craft a, a budget and create a plan to live life of responsibility and radical generosity. You could even look for a local offering of Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. I've been through it, and I can vouch for his approach, especially his lessons on generosity and sacrificial giving. And finally, at the end of this transcript, I've offered a guide for a special prayer time around this issue. So I want to encourage you to get alone with God. Really seek his guidance in how you should respond. Start determining now how kingdom stewardship will be built into your rule of a life. Ah, the elusiveness of enough. I know this subject gets really personal, but I trust you've been encouraged with it. Learn to live the unencumbered life. Be content with what you have. Learn to practice simplicity and frugality. And ultimately, let your life be characterized by radical generosity and sacrificial giving as we seek to have the heart of Christ and to participate in His kingdom. <laughs>